week-long trip up in Tacoa, Georgia, um, staying at a very wonderful resort with the best food you've ever had. Uh, but thankfully, that wasn't the case, but Jesus was there, and that's all that mattered. But uh, we've got a short little, it's the end-of-the-week video that they play. Some of the kids you'll probably recognize, a lot of them you won't. Uh, Impact is a, is a camp that's hosted by the Georgia Baptists, and they put on this camp every year for a week. And we have usually around uh, seven to 900 students show up for this week of camp. And so this video is just going to show you real quick uh, kind of what impact is about. And then and when we get done with that video, I'm going to read a couple of uh, just comments from our students to you about that week and what God taught them, just where you can see exactly what God did in their lives. I know a lot of times it seems like we're uh, separated from what's going on with the youth or what's going on with the children or senior adults or whatever else it is. And so I just wanted to let you see what God is doing in the lives of our youth. So we'll watch that. I'll come back up. And then after that, we'll get started with our message. My better moment was when I started using my musical talents for God and not just myself. My better moment is when I realized God was calling me to be a leader in my youth group. My better moment was when I heard God calling me to use my past experiences to minister to middle school students. My better moment was when I heard God call me to worship within my youth ministry. My better moment was when I felt God calling me to do video work in the church. 
So as you can see, the kids enjoy uh, impact. If you notice some weird things, each school or each grade is broken down into a school, and that school has a color, and then that school also has a theme. And so some uh, schools had a, a Christmas theme, some were uh, a circus theme, and so there were all these different kind of themes that they had for the week, so they have a great time doing that. Uh, but when we leave camp on Friday, one of the things that I've begun to do with our students is I pass out index cards and I ask them as we're pulling off of campus Friday, as we get ready to head back home and get back to the real world, uh, I ask them to just pause and think about what God has taught them that week. Uh, just a, a one sentence or just a few sentences of what God has done in their life or what God is calling them to do or what God revealed to them that week. Uh, and so all of those, I, I get them and I, I tell them they can be anonymous. You can put your name on it, do whatever. But I would just like to see uh, tangibly what God has taught you this week. And then also it's just a reminder for them as they write something down to be thinking about how am I going to implement what I've been learning this week at camp. And so I uh, typed up a couple of these. I, I left the names off. But these are students that went with us this past week to camp. And I'm going to read a couple of their responses that they wrote as we pulled out of camp Friday. The first one, uh, one of our students said this. It's, she said, or they said, I don't know if it's he or she. We'll just go with they. Uh, it says, this week God has shown me that I am not alone. I will always have God's love. I also realize that I have love and support from friends and family all around me. So that was one of our students, and that was their comment this week. Another one said, God has taught me to look for him for guidance in the darkest places. God showed me that he loves and cares for everyone. Also, he has taught me to be a leader. Another student wrote, This week I grew a lot closer to God. During worship, I felt the Lord's presence in a way I've never felt before. Another one said, I learned that when others leave my side, God will always be by my side. Another said, I learned to quit worrying so much. Another student wrote, I felt like God has called me to be a better leader. I can lead at my school, on my sports teams, and in my community. I want to be a light for Christ. Another student wrote, this week I have learned that people do love me, and God has shown me how to forgive. I have also learned how to talk to people about Christ. My goals are to start a Bible study with the girls in my grade and reach out to people individually. 
Another student wrote, God showed me to be a leader on the football team for Jesus Christ. And another one, one more, it says, I came to impact with a bitter heart. I experienced a lot of rejection and failure, and I prayed for a message about failure and rejection. Instead, I heard a message about better. This week taught me that I have to be a better person and stop being so bitter. Our students grew a lot this week. We looked at the idea of being better, and we looked, we actually walked through the life of, of uh, Moses, and uh, similar to what we talked about this morning, but we looked at his life, and we experienced this past week uh, the idea of being a servant leader. And so these are just a few that I picked just out of the stack. There were many, many more that we don't have time to read, but I just wanted to share with you uh, what God is doing in our youth group and in our students. We have uh, we had 40 stu- or 39 students that ended up going with us uh, this past week to camp, and God worked in each of their hearts in a certain way. And so I just want to thank you. I know many of you support our youth ministry financially. Many of you support our youth ministry by praying for them and by sending them out to these camps and other things. And I just want to thank you personally for the investment that you're making in this next generation. That, that they are already, I'm already seeing them become leaders and becoming better students and, and they're serving Christ in certain ways. And so I just want to thank you for that. I know you don't get to see them a lot or see them uh, doing those things as much as probably you would like, but just know that they are growing as well. And I thank you for the opportunity to have that and to serve them. So, all right, so now that's over, let's transition into the text tonight. We will be once again in Matthew chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 13. Let's open up in a word of prayer. God, I am once again thankful that I have the opportunity to come before you and preach your word this evening. God, what an amazing gift it is to come and to open up your word and to know that you are living and active, that you are speaking through it. God, that you have something to teach us tonight through that word. God, in particular, I thank you for the students that went with us to camp last week. God, I pray that what you did in their heart will not just be a camp experience, but it will something, be something that guides them for the rest of their lives. God, I know that so many of those students experienced you in a way that they have not experienced you before. And God, I pray that that will continue. God, that we as a church will continue as we already have done to walk alongside them, to guide them, to direct them, to support them. God, I am thankful for a church that takes serious the call to raise up the next generation, that invests so much time and money and effort and prayer into raising up these students to love you and to serve you in all that they do. So God, I just thank you for that opportunity. God, as we open up your word, I pray that you will speak through me. God, I pray that you will speak to all of us in the room. God, that we will glean the truths of your scripture this evening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, we're going to read through the, uh, the story of the fate of a centurion. Matthew writes, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, that is Jesus. Verse 6, it says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The main idea that I want you to take away from this text this evening is that Jesus has the ability to fix our greatest need. That Jesus Christ has the ability to fix our greatest need. And we have three points that we're going to walk through this text this evening. The first is that we must confess our inadequacy. We must confess our inadequacy. Secondly, we must trust in Jesus' authority. So after we confess our inadequacy, we trust in Jesus' authority. And then lastly, we submit to Jesus' sovereignty. The first section, verses 5 through 8, confess your inadequacy. Growing up, it was always nice to think of a time when I was going to be in control and in charge. I remember getting married and going on my honeymoon, and Babs and I went to the Dominican Republic, and we went to an all-inclusive resort. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those, but basically you show up, you, you pay beforehand, you get a ticket, you arrive, they put a wristband on your wrist, and for the rest of the week, you don't have to pay for anything. It feels like you've died and gone to heaven. You walk up to the, to the restaurant and you order something and they smile and they give it to you and they walk away and they never present you with a check. And if you don't like it, you get up and you leave that restaurant and you go to the American buffet and eat some pizza and cake and you don't have to pay for that either. And so we went to the, on our honeymoon and it was like heaven. I mean, you just walked around and you could take whatever you want and eat whatever you want and didn't have to pay for anything. And I remember getting back from our honeymoon and we were kind of tired of not having real American food. Even though it was great, it was still uh, not the same as some of the food that we have. And so we pulled out of the airport and we're headed back to Dublin to come visit with family. And we pass uh, God's restaurant, Chick-fil-A. And so we see Chick-fil-A and it calls our name and we go and order and we order two number ones with chicken sandwiches with fries and a drink. And I remember getting up to the window and so excited to eat this food. And I get to a window and all of a sudden the lady asked me for money. And I realized as I looked down to my wristband that that wristband had expired, that it wasn't good in America. And all of a sudden, me being in control, me being married and grown up, that all of a sudden I had responsibilities, that I had to pay for my food now. And so all of a sudden, it was fun to go out to eat before. And now it was kind of like, well, now we've got to order two instead of one. And so things got a little more expensive. When we get in control and we're in charge, it means that we have new responsibilities and new requirements. But when we grow up, we love the idea of being in control. We love the idea of being in charge of our curfews or in charge of our free time or what we can watch or who we can hang out with or whatever else it is you can think of. And so we think maybe the more control we have in our life, of, of our life, the better our life will be. But the problem is that there comes a time when we aren't in control. When we can't control those things or we can't do the things necessary in life that we need. Having an iPhone is wonderful. Having a, a smartphone is nice, but paying that monthly bill is not. Having a car is freeing and, and wonderful, but having a car payment is not. And so there's responsibilities and roles that we have, and there are things that we can control that we can handle in life, but there's also things that we can't control, that we can't handle, that, that we realize that we're inadequate for. And so often when people come to things that they are responsible for and they can't really do, they respond in two ways. One way they say that they, uh, or that they will take charge completely. 
So if something's going uh, bad and they want to do something, they take charge completely. They try to do more, even harder. They push harder in life. Others will just give up completely. They stop taking responsibility of anything. When we were in North Carolina, we had moved into our uh, new apartment in seminary, and we stayed in seminary housing. And one of the things when you move to seminary housing, they give you all these interesting rules that it, it just is really, really weird. But every hole that you put in the wall, if it's over a certain size, you get charged for it. And so when you move into the apartment, they repaint it and it looks brand new or somewhat brand new for a seminary housing. And so when we got there, I was scared to death of hanging anything. And so everything that we bought, we'd make sure it was really, really light. And I'd put these little bitty holes in the wall and hang it up. And my parents gave us this really, really nice mirror that was like kind of iron all around it. And it was gorgeous. And we wanted to put it in our little living room area. And the problem was on the back of it, if you've ever seen this, it, had, it was kind of a rectangle. And on the rectangle were the two holes where the screw was supposed to go in. And so rather than just putting one hole on the wall and hanging something, you actually had to make two holes perfectly at the right length, at the right height, at the right level, and then hang that mirror on it. Well, my dad's a handyman and a dentist, and so I was assured that it had passed down to me. And so I grabbed my drill and I put a hole in and I kind of measure and eyeball and I say, Babs, I think that's level. I think we're good. And I put another hole in and I go to put this mirror in and it won't even reach. I get one hole in and I, I mean, the other one's just way off. So I say, it's okay. It's all right. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put some toothpaste in that hole. They'll never know it's there. And uh, let's try again. And so I put another hole and we, we get it in this time and I'm so excited. And I jump off the couch because I didn't even own a ladder. And I jump off the couch, look back and the mirror is sitting like this. And it's about this high, so you can't see anything. And so I take it off, and I try again, and I completely fail. And I, so I get so frustrated after trying and trying and trying, I just give up. I told Babs, well, luckily, Mom and Dad are coming up in a couple of weeks, and Dad can hang it for me. When we moved into our new house, uh, we, were, we changed some things and, and painted the walls and changed uh, fixtures and things like that. And one of the things that I needed to replace was a toilet paper hanger. And uh, you would think that would be pretty easy. And so once again, thinking that I was skilled and I was a handyman, I went to hang up this toilet paper roll. And so I put it up and it worked fine. And I put that one up. And so I went to go to put the next one up and I put a hole in and put it in. And all of a sudden it pops out of the drywall. So I said, okay, I'll just put another one just a little bit further over and the cover will still cover those holes. And after about four or five holes, I realized that I've got a wad of holes that big and the toilet paper hanger is still on the floor. And so I'm like, what did I do wrong? And so I walked back into the other room to look at the one that I'd put, and I kind of wiggle it, and all of a sudden that one falls off too. And I said, oh, my goodness. And so Babs comes out of the back room hanging out with Hatcher and getting him ready for bed, and she said, you hang the toilet paper roll? And I said, well, kind of. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I've got about four or five holes in the wall, but the hanger's still not on it. And so she says, all right, call your dad. And so dad says, hey, you know those little plastic things that they put in there next to the screws? You need to put that in the drywall first, and that'll act as an anchor and that toilet paper hold, or hanger will hold up on the wall. So luckily I was still able to maneuver that. If you come into my house, you won't see the holes, but there are many, many holes behind that spot. But my response when things got out of hand, when I felt inadequate, was to either take charge completely to keep doing something over and over again or to just give up. And so in both cases of this, I would give up and unfortunately neither of those responses would work. Neither really fixed the solution for me. And so the only thing that would really work for me was to turn to the one person who had the ability to fix those things that I was dealing with. And that person, for me, was my dad, somebody that knew what he was doing. And so I would call him up. 
And so when I hang something in the house, I'll usually keep his number on speed dial, and if I mess up, I'll call him. Or if Babs is around, she's smarter, and she says, why don't you call him and then try? And that way you don't have to mess up. Now, obviously, this passage has nothing to do with home repairs or putting up mirrors, but it does have something to do with turning to the one person who has the ability to fix the things that we are dealing with. And that one person is not our dad or not a handyman, but it is Jesus Christ. That the one person that we turn to that has the ability to fix our greatest need is Jesus Christ. And that greatest need is our issue of sin. So we see this, this issue in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion comes up. He realizes he has a problem that he cannot fix. And so he comes to Jesus to fix that solution or to find the solution. A centurion was a commander. He was a commander specifically of a hundred men. And so the centurion would have been a Gentile. He would have not been a Jew. And so he would have been viewed as an ethnic outsider by the Jewish people. This would have been somebody that they were not very happy with, that they did not care for. And so he would have been, he would have been viewed as someone who was opposed to the people of God, someone that was against the Jewish people. And so the Jews would have considered him unclean because of his race. So he's, a Jew, he's not a Jew, he's a Gentile, so he's unclean, and they would despise him because he was a symbol of Roman subjugation. So they said, this guy rules over us, we despise him, we don't care for him, and so here's this guy coming up to Jesus, pleading for him to come fix or to come heal his servant. And so it says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And so it says in verse 5, he comes appealing to him. He comes asking. He pleads, Lord. The, the term Lord here is, is important. It's a sign of respect and an acknowledgement of authority. This man comes knowing that he has authority and coming to God or coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I know that you have authority. My servant is suffering. During this time, many times the servant would become very uh, close to the people that they served with. And so this centurion probably was very close to his servant. And so he cared for him and he wanted him to be healed. And so he comes, he says, look, he's suffering. He is in physical torture. I've had a very bad history of kidney stones throughout my life. I had my first one in college. And when Babs and I got married, I told her, I said, it's very likely that at some point in our marriage that I'm going to have a kidney stone. And when we were in North Carolina, that happened, and I came home, and I uh, woke up in the middle of the night, and I had a kidney stone. And many of you know Babs is a nurse, and so she's used to taking care of people and healing people and doing what she can to, to meet their needs. And so she was looking at me, trying to figure out what in the world can I do to help you. And she realized that I was suffering, that I was in this physical torture, that I was in this pain that would not go away. And she realized that there was nothing that she could do, and she just sits and says, I'm so sorry, I can't do anything. And so finally she takes me, and she takes, puts me in the car and takes me to the emergency room and lets the doctors heal me. She understood that although she was a nurse, that there was really nothing she could do to fix my physical pain. And so then the centurion is here saying, hey, I understand that my servant is hurting, and there's nothing that I can do. It's out of my hands. There's nothing that I can do to fix him. And so he comes to the Lord, he says, meet my needs, fix the issue with my servant. He says, come, he says, he's suffering terribly. In verse 7 it says, and he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. And so the centurion says, I am not worthy. 
I am not sufficient. I confess my inadequacy. I do not have the ability to deal with this situation. And so he says, do not come to my home. I'm unworthy of you to come to my house. Instead, just say the word. He's revealing his faith here. The centurion recognizes that there are barriers, barriers of ritual uncleanliness that would have prevented a Jew from entering his home, specifically Jesus. Being a Jew, he understood that. And so he has so much faith in Jesus that he says, I know that you are sufficient enough that if you will just say the word with just a command that my servant can be healed. And so our application for this first section is that we have needs and situations in our lives where we are inadequate. Sometimes those are physical needs, whether it's sickness or death or pain or suffering or family issues or whatever else it is. But we also have a greater need, a spiritual one, a separation from God. And so we come with inadequacy. We say we cannot overcome our sin, and yet we want a relationship with the Father. And so we confess our inadequacy as the centurion did. We believe that the Word of God will heal us from our greatest need. And so rather than trying harder or giving up completely, we instead surrender. We surrender our lives to Jesus saying, you are the one that can meet our needs. By your word, we can gain salvation. And so once we surrender those needs, once we acknowledge that we are inadequate, it comes to point number two, that we trust in Jesus' authority. Look at verse nine again. It says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And so the centurion sees here that Jesus has authority. Authority means that he has the right to exercise power. So he understands, I'm a centurion, I'm in charge of a hundred men. I know that if I give orders, the people will immediately follow me. He understands that Jesus can do the same. And so he relates his authority to Jesus' own authority over sickness and suffering. What faith? This Gentile, this non-Jew, this person who was despised by the Jewish people has more faith than anyone else. Jesus is amazed at his faith. He is amazed that he responds this way. And so what is faith? Faith is a humble trust in the authority of Jesus. Faith is a humble trust in the authority of Jesus. And so the centurion humbles himself and calls upon Jesus for healing. Once again, he uses the term Lord as a sign of respect. He's overwhelmed with this thought of Jesus coming and entering his home. And so he says, just speak. I have enough faith to believe that you can do this that I have simple and humble trust in your authority. And we too are called to trust in Jesus' authority as well, to believe that his word is sufficient to save, but not only that it saves us, but that it also sustains us. Not only it brings salvation in our life, but as we live our life, as we go about this Christian life, that it sustains us, it continually works in us to produce righteousness. That we walk by faith, that it saves and sustains. And so Jesus has authority. He has authority over sickness, over suffering, over death, over sin, and over the grave. And so we, like the centurion, must place humble trust and faith in Jesus Christ in all areas of our life. 
Whether it's trusting in his authority and rule over our physical needs or our spiritual ones, God is calling us to be like the centurion, to place our faith in him. And the importance of that is seen twofold. One, his faith, the centurion's faith, is a display of his humble trust. When we, when we faithfully follow God, it's displaying to others our humble trust in him. But also this faith is essential for a person's eternal destiny. That our faith in Jesus Christ will determine where we will, will spend eternity. And so we confess our inadequacy, we trust in Jesus' authority, and then thirdly, we submit to Jesus' sovereignty. Look back at verse 11. It says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus responds in amazement. He explains that many will come and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We looked at that idea this morning in Exodus, that this is the God, this is I am, this is Yahweh. And so God is saying that the fathers of the Jewish faith, that Gentiles from east and west will recline at the table with them, that they will spend eternity with him because of their faith. But it says of the sons of the kingdom, referring to those of the Jewish bloodline, that they will be thrown into outer darkness. What he's saying here is that they will be thrown into hell. Why? Because they did not have faith like the centurion. They didn't confess their inadequacy. They did not acknowledge their need for a savior. They didn't trust in the authority of Jesus. They didn't submit to his sovereignty over their lives. And so the Jews believed that their Jewishness, that their lineage from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would guarantee them a place in eternity with Jesus. They believed that they didn't have to have faith, but as long as they were descendants from Abraham, that they were okay. But yet Jesus points out that their eternal destiny had nothing to do with their lineage, but instead it had everything to do with their faith. And we as well, no matter in what background we come, whether our parents are believers or our grandparents are believers or we knew someone that was a believer, it doesn't matter where we come from as long as we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so we are called to submit our lives to God's sovereignty, to submit to God's power and authority over our lives. David Platt, a well-known uh, author and pastor, says this, he says, your eternal destiny is dependent on humble trust in the authority of Jesus to save you from your sins and to rule over you as the Lord of your life. Your eternal destiny is dependent on humble trust in the authority of Jesus to save you from your sins and to rule over you as Lord of your life. We must make a decision this evening and every day of our lives to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of our life instead of sin. We make a decision not only to follow Jesus Christ, but to follow him daily. To not only have saving faith, but have faith that sustains us. I taught this illustration at Impact this past week to one of our, to one of our schools when I was teaching, and it's uh, a pretty good story, but it says that there's a middle school in Oregon that faced a serious problem. A bunch of the girls were going into the bathroom, and they would put on their lipstick, and after they put on their lipstick, they would go up to the mirrors and they would kiss the mirror and leave lipstick prints all over the mirrors. And so the principal decides after time and time again of the janitor going in and cleaning these up that something has to be done. 
that there's got to be a way to stop these girls from doing this. And so they had told him not to. They didn't really know who it was. And so he, he ends up bringing the entire middle school class into one of the bathrooms, and he brings them, and he says, look, this is a problem. This is an issue. You've got to stop leaving lipstick all over the mirrors. And so to show them how big of a deal it is for the, for the janitor to have to come back and clean up everything, he asks the janitor and, and says, look, tell, tell the custodian, go clean up the mirror and let them see what you have to do. And so the custodian comes in, he grabs his brush, he opens up one of the stalls, he dips his brush down into the toilet, he comes back out, and he starts scrubbing the mirror. And so the, the principal says, see how difficult it is for them to come in and scrub all this stuff off the mirror. Well, miraculously, after that day, not a single middle school girl kissed the mirror. And the point of the story is this, when we are tempted to sin, if we could see the real filth that we'd be kissing, we wouldn't be attracted to it. When we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to turn away from God's plan in our life, if we could really see the filth that we are kissing, the filth that we are giving our lives to, we would not be tempted or attracted to it. And so we, may, we have a decision this evening. Will we allow the Lord to be ruler of our life? Will we admit our inadequacy, acknowledging that we come to him as a nobody, coming to him, confessing our need, and when we trust in his authority, knowing that he has the power to save, and will we submit to his sufficiency, to his power and authority to work in us? The world is going to teach us that sin is rewarding, and our finite minds are going to believe that it's rewarding, that it seems to be true, but it's a lie. We know that sin leads to destruction. It leads to a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where pain is constant, that we are separated from the love of God. And so all that will trust in Christ, regardless of their sin or regardless of their background or regardless of their lineage, are welcome to the king's table forever. Jesus Christ has paid the price for us with his life to overcome our sin so that we can be set free from sin's penalty. Our eternal destiny this evening is dependent on a humble trust in the authority of Jesus Christ. A humble trust, humbling ourselves, trusting in him to bring salvation. We're called to a faith that understands that he alone saves us from sin and that he alone is the Lord of our life. Confess your inadequacy, trust in Jesus' authority, submit to his sovereignty, and understand that Jesus has the ability to fix our greatest need. Please join me in prayer. Father, once again we come before you so thankful that you are a God that meets our need. God, not only that you meet our need of salvation, but that that need is met as you sustain our lives, as we live our lives, and receive you as Lord over them. God, may we see the filth of sin in our lives. God, may we not be attracted to it. May we not be enticed to it. But God, may we submit to you May we confess our inadequacy, coming to you, realizing that there is nothing that we can do to gain salvation, trusting that you have all authority and submitting to your power and your sovereignty. God, help us to do that as we go. God, work in our hearts, stir in our hearts to produce faith that is humbly trusting in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
At this time, Jonathan's going to come and lead us in a hymn of commitment. It's an opportunity for you to come down and talk if you would like, or just to come and pray at the altar. If you feel led, you can do that at this time. Please stand as we close.